Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're making our way kind of verse by verse through the book of the Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which are personal letters from Jesus to His church. Personal letters. Um, This is starting kind of the second set of letters, if you will. We began with the letter to the church at Ephesus. And then the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Pergamum uh, are the first three letters that we have studied. Now we come to the Lord's letter to Thyatira. T-H-Y-A, Thyatira. Interesting uh, name. And uh, this indeed is the longest letter of the seven. And uh, our time studying it is going to reflect that as well because we will be in this letter for uh, perhaps three weeks, possibly four. Uh, what I want to simply do today is um, talk with you about God's expectations for His church, particularly in the area of holiness and begin to examine this letter in light of God's command to holiness. Uh, this letter, as we will see, is a letter that is written, uh, is, is, it, this letter that's written is very sharp in tone. Jesus is very serious as he is confronting this church that has strayed so far from the truth. And even to give you an idea of just how um, serious or sort of in the face uh, Jesus is with this church, you only have to see that they were involved, if you will look down in verse 24, into the so-called secrets of Satan or the deep things of Satan or the things that this church was involved with. And part of the reason is because of this uh, lady who was uh, teaching in the church. She called herself an, a prophetess named Jezebel, and Jezebel wasn't her name, that was just the name that was given to her, and you'll understand more about that in the days ahead, you'll understand why no one ever names their daughters Jezebel. But listen to God's words to kind of let you sort of know the tone. Here's what he says in in the end of verse 22, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. I would say that's pretty firm or stern words from our Lord. Uh, in fact, uh, the King James says, which is really a closer translation to the original intent, I will kill them dead, right? I mean, that is literally the, the words that, that it says. 
uh, he uses the concept of death twice. Uh, in the striking they will die, and how dead will they be? I'm telling you, dead, dead. I will kill them dead. And so we need to heed the warning uh, that Jesus had not only to the church at Thyatira, but may I simply remind you that <laughs> let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. So I'm going to begin this way. God expects Christians to be holy. We don't hear much talk about holiness today, but I'll remind you that God's Word says over and over, Be holy, the Lord says. Literally, in First Peter, He says, Be becoming holy. There ought to be a progression in our walk with God towards holiness. God establishes character for I am holy. So to know Him is to love Him. To love Him is to obey Him. And in your obedience to Him, you become like Him. And how God is, is God is holy. Uh, You could take the picture of the church being the bride of Christ. Christ being the bridegroom, if you will. And He is gathering to Himself the church, the bride of Christ, that He may present her spotless, with without blemish. God has commanded and requires a holy people that He has called unto Himself. And we don't hear a lot of talk about holiness today. In fact, what we hear a lot today is a lot of people glorifying in their sin And the fact of their sinfulness. It used to be growing up that when people would commit sin, particularly those within the church, there would be some shame or some embarrassment or some blushing. Back in Jeremiah's day, the people had become so accustomed to sin... It says that their foreheads were like the foreheads of a stud, a, a horse, the very tall and very proud, and the people no longer knew how to blush. While it certainly is true that, that, um, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and though God calls us saints, we understand practically that we are sinners, we should never come to the place that we, uh, glorify in our sinfulness. I'd remind you of what the Bible says in the book of Romans where sin abounds, grace does indeed much more abound, but in the abounding of the grace in response to our sinfulness is not a license to continue in that sinfulness. God expects us, calls us, equips us, and enables us by His Spirit to be a holy people positionally, so that when He sees us, He sees us through the blood of Christ in holiness. But He also expects us practically and daily to become practically, pragmatically, if you will, what we already are positionally, and that is holy. 
In the churches that we have seen thus far, uh, there have been some attacks on the church from the outside. Uh, In the letter to the church at Ephesus, we saw um, that this was a church that was sound in their doctrine, sound in their teaching. They had a lot of great things going on, but they had left their first love. They left their first love. In the second letter, uh, to the letter of, of Smyrna, uh, there were certainly attacks from the Jews in what's known as the synagogue of Satan. The Jews were on the outside attacking uh, the church. In the letter to Pergamum, he talks about the place where Satan lives and the throne of Satan. And we talked about, in this case, the church was being attacked not by the Jews, but by the, by the Gentiles. By the Gentiles. And they become a worldly church. So in the, in this particular letter, what we see is they are now not just being attacked externally by the Jews and by the Gentiles, but they who had been flirting with sin, if you will, in the other churches now have fully embraced it and brought it into the church. If in one letter they were flirting with sin and another letter they had married sin and this one they were celebrating the anniversary of the sinfulness in the church. They are much further along. And just to kind of give you an idea in the there is a progression here uh, within these letters. In the first letter, they had sound doctrine, but had lost their love. In losing their love, they became compromising. In compromising, they became a worldly church. And in this one, the the fruit of worldliness in the church had uh, been born and been raised, if you will, uh, within the church. Not only is sin rampant in this church, but they are advocating uh, and celebrating it. Uh, no more of a call of holiness or separateness unto God. And so God comes and He deals with them in a sense of judgment, and you will see that. And I want to read this whole letter to kind of get it in in your mind, though, of course, we will only deal with the beginning portion of it today. So listen, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 18 and read down to verse 29. We'll read this entire letter to kind of have the full scope of it, and then we'll come back and study it. The Bible says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. We've seen that word before. I know that your last works are greater than your first. There are some good things that are happening within this church, and we will look at those as well. But I have this against you. 
You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time or space to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not hold this teaching who haven't known, I say, back up to verse 24, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the Churches. When you look at this letter initially, you see the strong words and you think, but what are they doing that's any different than a lot of other churches? They're practicing idolatry. They're practicing sexual immorality. How is that different from even many of the churches that are around us today? There's certainly this mindset of a lot of Christians who have embraced the sinfulness uh, of this world without any brokenness over it or repentance over it. That that sin is just part of who it is. And even in one conversation in recent months, one who claims to be and perhaps I believe to be a genuine Christian a genuine uh, believer in the things of God who was engaged in uh, a repeated pattern of sinfulness, a lifestyle of sinfulness, if you will, went as far to say that not only is it not wrong, but that God led them into this sinful practice and that He... Uh, um, they're engaged in this practice because it's what God would have them to do. Beloved, it's one thing to know the Word of God and to step away from the authority of God's Word. It's another thing to disregard the authorities of God's Word altogether to do whatever it is you want to do. And it's a whole new level to say that God rejects 
even the things that he has said in his word and makes acceptable the things that he has forbidden. I don't know how it's possible to be a true believer and credit God for arranging sinfulness in your life. It's a very, very uh, far away place to be straying from God. Well, Thyatira is a... Let's talk about the, the city and talk about the church for just a few moments. It will help you to understand a, a little more about this letter. Uh, Thyatira is a small city. Uh, even today, there are about 25,000 people there in the city of Thyatira. Uh, there are no mountains or things along the lines to speak of. It's on a flat land, a big agricultural center, uh, if you will. Um, it was arranged on uh, next to a major highway, a major highway. Uh, you would be on your way to somewhere else and come into Thyatira. And because of that, because of that, it was a place that was pretty easy to conquer. The good news is, is John MacArthur would say this, the good news is, is that it was on the major highway, gave it easy access. The bad news is, is it was on the major highway because that means that people were constantly coming in and they say, ah, let's just overthrow Thyatira on our way to somewhere else. Let's get some practice here with these. And so therefore, through the years, Thyatira was overthrown on a regular basis, a regular basis. It was just easy to conquer. There were no hills upon which they could see the defenders coming. They didn't have a strong army or anything that particularly would guard them. No major walls that would uh, protect them. And so they were an easy target and therefore they were, they were overthrown on a regular basis. They didn't necessarily have all the gods uh, worshipped as we saw in other cities. Here they would worship the god Apollo. But what they did here in this city was, uh, and it's something that we see evidence of in Scripture, uh, is they in their um, uh, workplace or in their craftsmanship styles that they would, they would gather together and all the people that practiced that particular type of work or that particular type of craftsmanship, they would gather together in what we would look to be similar to unions. They, uh, the word is guilds. They would be, they would have guilds. So for example, all the coppersmiths would come together and in order to be, uh, legitimate or genuine in uh, as a coppersmith in those areas, you had to be part of the coppersmith guild. And they would have that for uh, winery and making wine. They would have that for the silversmiths and, and things as well. And in order to be successful in business, you almost had to be part of these guilds. Part of these guilds. And being part of these guilds, that means that you would come together with your buddies, if you will, all the people that were participating in that particular practice, 
And you would do the things that they required of you with in those particular guilds, which would be to participate in multiple feasts throughout the year, worshiping idols. And then along with those feasts and along with those idols were um, the orgies and the sexual immorality, the parties, the drunkenness, and all the things that went along with it. If you were became a Christian, you would still be required or to be part of these guilds, to be part of these unions, if you will. There would be an expectation that you would go. And so what they would tell you and what they would teach you is, is you go serve God all day, every day in the things that you do. But when we come together for these feast days, and you need to come here and, and practice this. They almost would preach this dualism, if you will. In other words, you can worship your God however you want to apart from our times together. But when our times come together, if you weren't part of this, well, if you didn't participate in the guilds, then basically you were forced out of business. You would lose your livelihood. Uh, it would be very, very difficult. Let me give you some uh, examples here, uh, if I could. Of You won't see the word guild in the Bible. But you'll kind of get an idea. Go with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, verse 10, the Bible says this, This went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia... Both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. Greeks would be uh, Gentiles who spoke the Greek language. So the, the gospel was progressing throughout Asia. Thyatira would be part of that. Thyatira perhaps uh, was started by Lydia. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, you see there's a lady named Lydia who was a seller of purple cloths and dyes. Uh, she got saved and members of her household were saved. Uh, she was from Thyatira and perhaps Lydia and those who were saved with her went back to Thyatira and perhaps that's where the, the church started. Other people got saved on Paul's missionary journey. Here in Acts chapter 19 verse 10, what we see is, is that the gospel is going all throughout Asia. All throughout Asia. Acts 19.11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. They were they were not believers in Christ, but they were going around and there's a way to make some money and a way to have some power. So they would be going around and commanding demons to come out of people and they were not believers themselves. For example, you had the seven sons of Sceva here in verse 14. They were uh, seven sons of Sceva who was a Jewish high priest. They were doing this and the evil spirits answered them. They were going around and saying, I'm cast you out in the in the uh, power of the Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demon spoke back to them. The evil spirit in verse 15 answered them. I know Jesus and recognize Paul. But who are you? Who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, we could pause and as a side note, ask this question. Uh, does the devil know you? You see, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, because why? Because they were going around and doing things, obviously, Jesus, be Jesus being God, suffering and dying and, right, overcoming death, hell and the grave. And Paul I knew because Paul was going around and doing spiritual things. The works that he had done had attracted, right, the attention of the devil. In other words, are you doing anything significant spiritually in your life that would get the attention of the devil? When this became known, verse 17, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both the Jews and the Greeks, they became afraid and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. I did all that to get to verse 18. Um, many who had become believers became confessing and dis- came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone, so they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. To give you an idea, one piece of silver would be a day's wage, entire day's wage. I mean, you're talking about a lot of money. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So what would happen is, is they would go in and they would preach the gospel and these silversmiths and coppersmiths and all would, they would be part of their livelihood and practices to, right, to perform this magic and to build these idols and to create these things. And when the gospel came in, it disrupted all of that. So people would not have a favorable idea uh, or a favorable picture of the Christians and the gospels. Go down to verse 23, if you would. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way for a person named Demetrius. Now look at this. A silversmith who made silver of shrines of Artemis. So Demetrius would be part of the silversmith guild. He made these shrines of silver of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. You see this? That's how they made their livelihood. And when he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands were not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very very one all of Asia and all the world worship. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusions and they rushed together in the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonia, who were traveling and basically came in there into the synagogues and 
those guilds would be the ones whose livelihoods were at stake here and they would want to stop and do something about it. You see another idea, a section of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's just touch on 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we make our way back to... Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, look in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith, it would be part of the coppersmith guild, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourselves because he strongly opposed our words. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. So even though you don't see the idea of, or you don't see the, the word guild or unions, you see that they, they very much are organized and very much a, a part of it. And this very much was a part of the city of Thyatira and that area and region in general. And it plays in specifically, as you'll see in the days ahead, with this particular letter and the importance uh, of it. So you see, these are the things that were taking place not only in the city of Thyatira, but also that made their way into the church. Into the church. One other aspect I'll cover this morning is the way that Christ presents Himself to the church at Thyatira. So we've looked at the city. We've looked at the church started by Lydia, perhaps, and others who have been saved. And now let's look and see how Christ presents Himself. You remember that in the start of each of these letters, the Lord Jesus is writing and He says to the the angel or to the messenger of the church of Thyatira, write. And the pattern of these letters is not only are they to write, but... But he also gives a description of himself. And the description of himself is the description. The descriptions are descriptions that he's already mentioned that when John saw him in chapter 1. And so when we studied chapter 1 and we went through this physical description of what Jesus looked like to John in chapter 1, certain portions of these pictures of Jesus are now... The, the way that he presents himself to the to the churches. These particular descriptions and aspects are found in, in each of the letters. Uh, for example, we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And you can go back up. And see in Revelation chapter 1, 17 and following this exact description. In verse 8, write to the angel in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. Again, the description of Jesus. Verse 12, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. When we come to Thyatira, 
we see something that's very fascinating. I think if we catch it, and I think we'll understand a little bit more about it since we uh, know a little more about the context in which this letter was written. Notice what it says in verse 18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. And you may say, I don't really understand or see the significance of that or how it's changed. But really, it's, 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 it's all found in, in one word. And that word is, notice the difference if you will. Look in chapter 2 verse 18. Thus says the, what? The Son of God. The Son of God. Go back if you would to chapter 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstand was one like the... Son of man. Son of man. Both of those are equivalent titles for Jesus. The idea of Jesus being the Son of man shows Jesus is caring and compassionate. It shows Jesus coming, being 100% God, but focusing on being 100% man to be the Christ, to be the sacrificial lamb, to be the substitute for us in order that we can be saved and brought into the family of God. To be the Son of Man. By the way, go down just a, a, a little bit more. And what you see here, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a fiery flame. So we have the Son of Man tied in with the fiery flame. His feet were like a fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. So there he's described as the Son of Man. It would be Jesus coming and being in the midst of the churches. It would be Jesus in His caring, compassion ministry. It would be Jesus coming and living the life that we could not live, dying the death in our place that we uh, should have died. It would be Jesus being fully God, but being fully man. The Son of Man would focus on Jesus fulfilling all the commands of God and Jesus living the human life perfectly, uh, if you will, in order to be the sacrificial substitute for us that we need it. Remember that God's wrath is poured out on us because of our sin. And to every person who is saved, it's because Jesus, the Son of Man, who was God, came from heaven to earth and lived the life that we could not live, died the cruel death in our place that we should have died, thereby bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. The title Son of Man shows the comparing, the, the uh, caring, compassionate side of of Jesus. When we get to chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Thus says the Son of God, whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. The idea of the Son of God is the idea of that's how Jesus is coming when He returns and He's coming to judge. It's the idea of judgment. Jesus being God, fully God. 
For example, if you would, go with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse verse 18. You can see, we'll actually pick up in verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My Father is still working, and I am working also. Verse 18, This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill Him. Not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal to God. Alright? If anybody ever comes knocking on your door, engaged in a conversation, said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, apparently, everybody else thought that He did. And so, notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on His own, but only what the Father, uh, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. It's talking about the, the sonship of God. So he was calling himself God. Went down to verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but pass from death to life. Verse 25. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, so also He has granted to the Son to have life in Himself. And He has granted Him the right to pass judgment. Because He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. He will judge everybody. And by the way, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 says, Let judgment begin with the house of God. You'll see this concept also in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 verse 63. This is Jesus. He's been arrested. Judas has already betrayed him. He faces the Sanhedrin. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin, verse 59, were looking for false testimonies against Jesus. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Is judgment going to come through you. You have said it, Jesus told him. You will see this Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. The demons knew Jesus in that way. Luke chapter 4, there were demons who were cast out and 
Luke chapter 4, verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on each of them. He healed them. Verse 41, also demons were coming out, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. Tied in with the idea of the son of God is his coming. He was son of God in his first advent. It's the idea of judgment coming in his second. So when we come back to Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, though in Revelation chapter 1, presented himself to the church as the Son of Man, carrying compassion. In chapter 2, verse 18, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame, able to pierce into the depths of the heart. Uh, This we saw in Revelation chapter 1. It's also in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 as well. The one whose eyes are like a fiery flame. In other words, nothing's going to stop him from piercing into the depths of the church and the church being people into the depths of our eyes to see the things that He sees and whose feet are like fine bronze. When Jesus approaches the church at Thyatira, He approaches them strongly. And He approaches them with a sense of Judgment. I want to go back to, to one thing uh, about those guilds. I want to see, I forgot to mention one verse uh, earlier. Go back, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. I think this will play into uh, the discussions uh, as well to kind of give you an idea about these guilds and then about what happens when a person who has participated with all of their buddies and these guilds happen and then they try to live life right and do things differently. The things that would happen in these guilds would would be looking first current first Peter chapter four verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. The one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. The idea is is that when you're participating in those guilds and you're participating in all those sins, God comes in, saves you, you live a separate life, you move towards holiness, you finish with sin, you stop doing the things that you're doing. Though we're going to see that she, Jezebel, whoever this Jezebel is, we'll know more about her next week, is encouraging them to come and engage in, continuing in all of those things. Peter says those who have been saved, those who have been set apart, are pursuing a life of holiness. They're finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desire but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living. Well, that's how you used to be. That's how you used to do it. 
You used to have the same vocabulary that we had. You used to engage in the same practices of unholiness that we did. You used to participate in all the parties and all the crowding and all of those things. And now all of a sudden you stop. Because of this Christianity thing. And they wouldn't say, well, good for you. That a way to get your life together, get on the right track. Boy, I wish I could. No, no, no. Look at what it says. It says, and they slander you. You're no longer a part of them. You're excluded from them. And to be excluded from these guilds would be, well, it would be your livelihood, giving up your livelihood as well. simply want to remind you today in this opening look at the church at Thyatira that God commands and expects holiness. God commands and expects that you and I will become holy by the way in all of our conduct. That we will no longer practice in the sexual immorality and the idolatries and all of those things there. And yet you and I, to do those things, we might suffer a little verbal persecution. If our lifestyle radically changes, you begin to radically live for Christ. You might lose a few friends. But I would remind you that in this letter, they, they would lose their livelihood. And oftentimes they would lose their life. And they would go to church. And this one, this Jezebel, who professes to speak for God, says... She's a prophetess and she teaches and deceives her servants. She says, continue to commit sexual immorality and continue to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Continue in those things. It'll all be fine. And you'll have your livelihood. Oh, you can still worship your God. So I'll simply close with, with this. You see the stern... Warnings to this Jezebel. One thing I find fascinating in this passage is the letters written, the letters written to the messenger of the church at Thyatira, just like the others. Jezebel is mentioned. It's not her real name. And all the things it says about Jezebel, not one time does Jesus speak directly to her. You would almost think if it was you and I writing this letter, we'd have a few things to say to Jezebel ourselves. But not one time does he speak directly to her. He has a lot to say about her. Why is that? Next week, we will get there. I hope and pray today that you are reminded that God expects His people to be holy. 
And I hope you're reminded even in the introduction of this letter as we see the harshness with which this judgment is spoken, the, the, the sternness of this warning. That you and I who have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches and the churches are the people. That you and I would take time to examine our own lives in light of this as we study this letter and ensure that we have not bought in to the idea that sinfulness is acceptable in the eyes of God and that judgment will not come. For beloved, the very idea that we think that our sinfulness is acceptable indicates that we are in grave danger of judgment and God dealing with us. So let's examine ourselves and be sure that we are striving for holiness that we are broken over the sinfulness even in our own lives, that where we see the areas of sinfulness in our own lives, we don't chalk it up to this is who we are and this is how it's always been. My grandmama was this way, my mama this way, I guess I got it too. That we don't make excuses for sin, that we are reminded that God takes sin seriously and that He will deal with it. And therefore, He calls us as a church to deal with sin in our midst. A lot of different churches that do a lot of different things, different liturgies, different denominations, different Bible translations, different styles of a lot of things. But one thing that is to be consistent in all of the churches is that the churches are to deal with sinfulness within themselves. And I simply could go back to the very first teaching of Jesus in the first chapter, Matthew chapter 18, the first instructions to the church that we always use for a poorly uh, attended prayer meeting. Well, where two or three are gathered in the midst, there I am. There I am in the midst. I would have you go back and read the context of that. Jesus is teaching His first instruction on the church and it has to do with church discipline. And it has to do with the fact that we are required and expected to deal with sin in the church. We must deal with it if we're going to be faithful to God. And if our lampstand is to remain. And beloved, that's what it means to be part of the church. That's what it means to be members of the body. It's coming into a covenant relationship with one another that understands that we are going to edify and encourage and equip and build up. But it also means that we are going to practice church discipline and deal with sin in the lives of our members as God declared and decreed that we would do. 
Now, many churches are doing that today. There are many churches that are in danger of the same judgment that Thyatira ultimately received. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that all of us, Lord, would sense the presence of your holiness. May we be reminded of your perfection. May we be reminded that you alone are holy in all of your character and all of your conduct. The totality of your being is holiness. There's only one attribute of God that is spoken, being repeated three times. And that is you are holy, holy, holy. You are holy, holier, holiest. You are the holiest, holiest, holiest of all things. And you command us to be holy in our conduct. It is your desire that we would be presented as the bride of Christ. Like a lamb without spot and without blemish. Father, I pray that we would be a church that indeed would take sin seriously. And that we would be one who not only would consider the sinfulness in each one of our lives together as a church, but that we would confront it in our community and our society as well. Pray, Father, that there would not be a spirit of compromise, that there would not be a spirit of tolerance for one such as Jezebel in the church today who is leading Christians astray. And Father, you would call us to yourself, that you would call us to repent, you call us to return to you, and to strive in the area of holiness. Father, thank you for your word, for it instructs us, it convicts us, it renews us, it strengthens us. And Father, I pray that even as you've promised that this word that's going forth today will not return void, but will have its work, will do its work and have its way in our lives individually and in our church collectively. God, I'm thankful that there are great blessings, great blessings to those who pursue this and who strive after this. And I'm thankful for the blessings of the conquerors, the overcomers, even in this particular passage of Scripture. We surrender our lives to You, our church to You, and may we be found faithful in all that we do for Your glory this week. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. And God's people said, Amen.